Good afternoon. It's good to be with you all uh, this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, while you're turning there, just want to say a few things because there are uh, two holidays today. So first, happy Juneteenth. It's a holiday celebrating uh, freedom for slaves who found out a couple months after the end of the Civil War that they were free. And it's also Father's Day, as most of you know, which celebrates uh, dads, of course. So uh, we're thankful for all of you who are dads here at church. You have an important role to play in the church and in your family. And so to kind of help motivate you and exhort you in your role as a father, we um, bought you free popsicles after service. So um, just kidding. It's, I mean, not, we are giving you popsicles, but that's not really that important. It's just a small token of our appreciation. Um, all right, uh, moving along. Let's open our Bibles. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'll read the text for us, and then we will pray and get into it. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can come before you as a church, that we can join together with the family and the household of God, that we can worship you with our voices, sing praise, and we can also receive from you your word. Lord, help us to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and hearts to believe and accept your word so that we might know who you are better. We might understand how good your word and your promises are for your people. I pray, Lord, that all this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever built a house? 
A uh, few years ago, I got interested in Amish living. I don't know why I get into this kind of stuff. I think I was seeing all sorts of like homesteading videos online where people, you know, buy a plot of land and they go build a home and, and they live free from uh, everyone else for a while. But I was interested in the Amish because they were doing it without the YouTube videos, right? They were doing it in a legitimate way. And uh, they like to build these barns, right? They like to build these houses together. Maybe you've heard about that before. Have you ever built a house I, I find it kind of romantic to think about that concept, to, to build a house on my own, but I've never actually done kind of a from-scratch build. But one time I was able to go to Mexico on a missions trip, and, and we had finished building a house for a family that was down there. And I remember uh, I was pretty young at the time, maybe in my early 20s, and as I was looking at the house and we were kind of preparing it for the family to come in, there was a little bit of an internal dissonance going on inside of me, right? As I was looking at what we were doing, what we were going to give to the family, because as I looked at the house, I remember being um, pretty underwhelmed by what we had built, okay? Not, I mean, not that anyone did a poor job, but it was very small. It was very simple, just kind of concrete floors and, and simple walls. And I remember the windows didn't even have like glass coverings, right? It was just like curtains over the windows. And then this family came in. And it wasn't the kind of house I would have wanted, right? It wasn't the kind of house that I thought was very great. But when they came to the home and I saw their faces, it was a young family. It was just a father, a mother, and their young son. I saw that they had this sense of wonder, right? This sense of like, wow, we have a home for the first time. We have a place that we can call our own, a place to finally live and dwell. And maybe you've experienced something like this before. If you own a house, maybe that, that thrill of first calling yourself a homeowner, or even if you don't own a home, you can probably relate to the feeling of having a place to call your own. Maybe going back to your childhood house or, or, or making a home wherever you find yourself to be. Now, this text that we're looking at today as we're going through the book of Samuel, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's a text that talks a lot about a house or a home. It's what dominates the interaction between the Lord and David all throughout the verses we read. And as we look at this passage in detail, what we'll discover is God has something to say about a house and the one who will build it that is different than we might expect, but is ultimately better. So as we break down this text, we're going to look at it in three parts, starting with the house God actually wants, verses 1 through 7. The text starts off right in the beginning with these words in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. You can stop right there. That's the context of this chapter. And the first thing that we notice is that everything begins with David living in his house. Now, if you haven't been with us yet, um, and this is maybe one of your first times with Zoe, we've been going through the story of David, 1st and 2nd Samuel, about how he becomes the king over all Israel. And how he's at victory over all of these different enemies. And how he has gone and made Jerusalem the capital city of Israel the nation. In the past chapter, he went and he brought the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God back from its storage space, so to speak, into the city to to set up a tent for it. Now, as David is hanging out in Jerusalem, we know from previous chapters that the house that he lives in is a nice house. He had this friend, Hiram, king of Tyre, and he had sent him these masons and these woodworkers, and he had sent him these cedars so that this house would be one of the nicest houses you could imagine not having AC and living in 1000 BC, right? As good as it gets back then. And so David is living, the Hebrew word here is yeshab, for dwell or remain or sit. 
And he's doing this in his house, which is the Hebrew word beth, which means house or household or home. Two words right off in the beginning that are so important to this chapter. And as David is living in his house, something's wrong. Something disturbs him, right? If you're reading the chapter, you see it right there. Something is on his mind. He can't quite enjoy this beautiful, luxurious house that he's in. Why? Verse 2 tells us, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So what's the problem here? David feels off because he looks around and he says, My house is nicer than God's. My house looks better than the Lord's. I think you can kind of imagine how he feels in that moment. Um, when I was, uh, when we had our, our second daughter, um, Bethany, my parents, who are actually here today, uh, they gave me uh, a trade. Okay, so they had a minivan and I had an Accord and we swapped cars with them. The only problem was my Accord was actually 10 years older than the car they gave me. And so every day that I would see them driving around in that old car would kind of fill me with a little bit of shame, right? That my parents were driving this ancient vehicle because they had cared for me. You can kind of understand how David feels. He looks at the Ark of the Covenant, which according to the book of 2 Samuel is in just a tent, not a full-blown tabernacle, but in a tent in Jerusalem. And he looks at his house, which is beautiful and made of cedar, and he has this slight feeling of guilt. He's disturbed. He, he says literally, if you look at this in Hebrew, I dwell in cedars, but the ark dwells in curtains. That's kind of the idea behind it. And so David turns to Nathan, his buddy, who happens to be a prophet. He tells him this, and then Nathan says, you know what? Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever is on your mind to change the situation so that you don't have to feel guilty anymore about living in this house while the ark of God is in a tent. And so David has a plan. We read it there. David decides that he will build a better house for God. That he is going to build him a base, a, a house, which can also mean temple. Basically, he's going to buy his dad a brand new truck for Father's Day so he doesn't have to feel bad about his car anymore. And Nathan, his buddy, says, do it. The Lord is with you. Now, question, has the Lord been with David? Yes, he has. If you've been reading this story, is Nathan's assumption bad that the Lord is with David to do this thing? No, it's not a bad assumption. The Lord has been with David. The text tells us that explicitly. David, apart from when he has sinned, has has been with the presence of God. God has blessed everything he's done. So David assumes that what, I mean, Nathan assumes what David wants to do is reasonable. It sounds like a good idea to him. But it is an assumption, and we'll soon find out, like many assumptions, turns out to be wrong. David, he's in this house. He wants to build a bigger and better house for God. And it seems so good. What the Bible tells us is that it's wrong. That God doesn't want that kind of house at all. And look at the next verse, in verse 4. It tells us immediately after Nathan and David assume this good plan, that night, that same night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and tells him, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And what follows is the longest speech we have of the Lord since the books of Moses. The longest monologue from the Lord to someone in scripture since he spoke face to face with Moses, his servant. God tells 
David something through Nathan to correct him and tell him all about the kind of house God actually wants. In response to their assumption, God says simply, you want to build a house for me? And it's kind of a rebuke, right? And don't get it wrong, it's not a harsh rebuke. It's not like wanting to build God a nice house was a sin or anything like that, but it's a gentle rebuke going on. David wasn't sinning in his desire to build a temple for the Lord, but this gentle correction is almost an amused rebuff. It's as if the Lord takes him onto his lap like a father would to his son to say, thank you, that's cute, but let me explain to you how this really works. And so look at verse 6. God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And here's what God says. He's not concerned with having a house like David has. He doesn't care that David has a nice house and he is in a tent. In fact, what he does is he reminds David that the whole idea of a tent for the Ark of the Covenant was his idea in the first place. If you think back to the story of Moses and the Israelites when they left Egypt and, and they come out and they go to Mount Sinai and they're given these laws about how they're supposed to live holy before the Lord, along with those laws, the Lord gives them instructions to build the tabernacle. Right, the blueprint for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where the ark was held, was given explicitly by God. And so God reminds David and Nathan that it was his idea to be in a tent. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why does God tell David this? What is he trying to correct about David's assumptions? He says, I'm the one who wanted to live in a tent for a reason. What's the reason? It says it in verse 7, so that he could move with all the people of Israel. So, so what's the point? Well, what's the meaning of this? It's kind of shocking, really, if you're thinking about David and Nathan in the palace of the king. God says, I like living in the tent. I like it. Now, we know that the God who made the world and everything in it does not dwell in temples, right? As Paul said, he, he's not served by human hands, right? As if he needed anything, right? He created everything. He gives all mankind life and breath and everything. So the point isn't that the kind of house God likes is temporary housing, as if God likes that particular structure. No, the lesson is the house God wants is with his people. That's why he's in a tent, because they were wandering through the wilderness. And if you're wandering around somewhere, you can't stop and build a house. You set up your tent. And this is what God gave to the people of Israel. He said, I, I, I was in this tent so that wherever they went, all the people of Israel, I could go with them. And if you study your Bibles, the book of Leviticus is 100% about this. What it means for God to be near the people. What it means to live next door to God. God is reminding David that he chose a tent because his desire was to be near a people who were wandering and moving about and not yet settled. And if we could put it in the most colloquial terms, the reason God was in a tent and not in a home wasn't because he was homeless. It's because he was camping with his family. You know, today is not just Father's Day. It's not just Juneteenth. It's actually my anniversary. So, hey, uh, happy anniversary, Trisha. She's not even here. She's serving. Um, but the reason I bring it up is that can you imagine if I came home to my wife 
and I said, you know what, I have the best anniversary present for you. I know you haven't had one of these in a long time, right? I know you, 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 have, you might miss this, and so I bought you for our 12th anniversary your very own bed. Can you imagine how that would go over with her? Can you imagine what she would think? See, she's not in my bed because she can't have her own. She wants to be near to me. And this is what the Lord says to David. The tent, the reason I was in a tent wasn't because I'm so weak a God that I need someone to build me a temple to somehow give me the glory that I can't get on my own. It's because I wanted to be near you. I wanted to be near my people Israel. That's why I chose to live that way. See, the kind of house David wanted to build God wasn't the kind of house God wanted at all. Now, the Lord would accept a temple later on. But what God is saying is that he is Lord of all. He chose a tent to dwell among his people. And this is an incredible truth of Scripture. That God desires to dwell among us. To dwell near to us. Do we believe it as a church? God doesn't need us. He doesn't need a house. He doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need anything we can give him. He doesn't need this church building, of course. But he loves to be near to his church, his people. David's desire to build a house for God and God's response teaches us that, yes, God is God. He doesn't need that type of house, but he loves it when we also want to dwell near him. And this leads us to the second part of the passage where we see in light of this the house that God has been building. So we saw the house that God actually wants and then second, the house God has been building in verses 8 through 11. God doesn't need the kind of house David assumes he wants. And David's assumption that God is just waiting for someone to build a nicer house for him is at best cute. It's at worst a little bit insulting. As we look at verse 8, God reveals to David that all this time, not only did he not ask for a house, but he's been doing something. He's been building something good all along. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, there's a few things to note here about the text. Um, in the Hebrew, in the original language, if you read this chapter, all of the verb tenses are the same. Okay, and that's very confusing if you're translating it because it basically looks like they're all happening at the same time. There's no difference between past tense, present tense, future tense in this passage. And in Hebrew, it's not even that clear all the time. You have to go by context. And so uh, as you're looking at these verses, even though the English translators choose a past or present or future tense, it's a judgment call. And so in my opinion, verses 8 through 11, they actually speak to past actions that God has already done. They are a reminder. Verses 12 and onward, they speak of the future because they talk about after David dies, what will happen. But verses 8 through 11, in my opinion, are talking about what God has already done and is doing through David. If you want to think of it this way, I think of it as the recap. The recap before the episode begins. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? You guys watch, I don't know if you watch those streaming uh, shows, they always have a little recap section before the show begins. And it's kind of funny how 
like 10 years ago, I was thinking we were entering a golden age of entertainment, right? Everything was like streaming, no ads, no waiting, pure convenience, everything you could binge all at once. And then I'm sure you've noticed all of a sudden things started to go backwards in time, right? There are these ads when I watch uh, these streaming services that you can't skip, right? It's like three minutes of ads, you can't skip. And not only that, they go out one week at a time, or you have to wait for the next Wednesday or the next Friday. And so I used to tell my kids back in my day, we had to wait for the week to come before we could watch. And we had to watch the things called commercials. And now I'm like, that's just 2022. It's just the past going over again. But I digress. Sorry about that. Uh, with the return of the weekly show, I noticed that they all have the recap. Right? They tell you what's happened in previous episodes so you can understand better what's happening in that current episode more fully. And that's what we have here. God is speaking to David. He gives David a recap all the way from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 6. What has happened in David's life? What do you need to know to understand what's going to happen next? Well, <clears throat> you need to know that God is the one who's been at work. A couple of you were mentioning to me how you love these historical books of the Old Testament like I do, but you can sometimes get caught up in the political drama and the things going on that you lose sight of the spiritual significance. And it seems like that may be what happened to David as well. And verses 8 through 11, they recap what has happened in David's life. But interestingly enough, as we read these passages, as we read these verses, we don't see an emphasis on David's great acts. We see the curtain pulled back. We see the man behind the curtain, God showing David that all the things that happened were actually all what God was doing himself. You see, King David was Israel's greatest king. He went from shepherd boy to national hero to anointed prince to future king. But it was God who did that, right? Or David, after all, was just in the field and he wasn't even there when Samuel showed up. God had to tell Samuel, go and find the youngest son of Jesse. Bring him here so I could anoint him. And David was the leader of Israel's mighty men. He conquered and he slew tens of thousands of God's enemies. He brought down Goliath. But it was God who did that, right? Because David just had a sling and six stones and yet somehow, five stones, sorry. And somehow God brought that stone all the way to the giant's head. The Lord sovereignly protected him from Saul, from Achish, from the Philistines, from the Amalekites, from the Jebusites. All of these battles, we saw the Lord went before him. And yet again, King David was the greatest hero, the one who brought glory to Israel, made a name for them in the world. And yet again, God says, it was I who did that. That God made him into a great man, like the great ones among the people. David has done a whole lot in these verses. He's done a whole lot in these chapters. But if you reread the story again, you'll also notice that David does a whole lot of waiting around. He's just sitting around waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Now, he is obedient. Don't, don't get me wrong. He's not doing nothing. But it is God who is at work. And the reminder is that God did all these good things in David's life, and so he deserves the glory. He's not exaggerating his role and downplaying David. He's telling the truth. He's telling it as it really is. And we need to see this as well. If we are Christians, if we believe in the word of God, we need to see that. That's what this book does. It peels back the curtain so that we don't take the glory for ourselves. And so many people have a problem with this. Honestly, in the world, they have a problem with this idea of God being sovereign and in control and worthy of all the praise. We suppress that truth in unrighteousness all the time. But the Bible tells us that if we establish in point one that God 
is the God who can do whatever he wants. That he deserves the glory. And everything good ultimately comes from him. A lot of people in this world, like I said, they're rubbed the wrong way by this. I remember one time I was reading some comments online. Right, I broke the rule. I read the comments. And there was someone who was going off on a commenter who had praised God for being healed for a disease. And they're like, how dare you praise God and not praise the doctor who actually studied hard and worked hard and did this thing to heal you? And that's the way the world thinks. That's the way we as people think. I think that in my own life sometimes, even as a pastor. Right? How dare you not recognize what I did for the church, what I did for you, what I've sacrificed. No, it's been God all along. When you understand what the Bible truly teaches about us, about our sin, about our nature, to make things about ourselves, to destroy the good things we touch, then you have eyes to see what God says here. Every good thing ultimately comes from the Lord. And so if we ever want what's good, we have to turn to him. Even salvation itself and the faith by which we obtain it is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And so what the Bible is telling us, what David and Nathan are learning again, is that God is always at work behind the scenes. David is the main character. He's the most important human in the books of Samuel, but it is ultimately about God. It always is. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It is a perversion of the Bible, of Christian truth, to focus on the great things we do for God. It is always first about the great things the Lord has done for us. If we do anything great, it is simply God at work in and through us. So back to the text, because this is what the text teaches. What does God want David to see? It's been all God. He's been gracious. He's been good. He deserves the glory, but what else? David thinks he needs to build God a house. But God has been building a dwelling place all along. Look at verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. God has been at work in David's life doing what? Getting his people Israel to the dwelling place he wants them to be. Bringing his people to the place where he would plant them so that they might dwell, that's the word again, Yeshab, and be disturbed no more to rest with the Lord. God has been in the process of doing something for himself through Israel's wandering and through David's exaltation as king. He's been working out his plan to build the kind of house and dwelling place he wants. He's been leading his people to rest with him, to make a home with him, to live with him, to dwell securely with the Lord. You see, this is the story of the Bible, if you haven't known it. You guys know, I think, Adam and Eve and how they're in the Garden of Eden. And they're with God, right? They walk with the Lord in the cool of the afternoon. And yet our sin destroys the whole thing. Their sin broke this world. And ever since then, we've been living in a world where we don't walk every day with the Lord. We walk and we see sin and destruction and brokenness and death all around us. This is the problem with the world. And yet the Bible tells us that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise to them that he would do something to bring his people back to dwell again securely with the Lord. He has been working through the history of all mankind and the history of this nation and the life of this man, David, to bring about this future and this hope. As the writer to Hebrews said, the people came to the promised land, but they still had not yet received the rest of God. 
And so we see in this passage that God has a great desire for his people, for us included, one in which we rest secure by making our home with him. And yet I wonder if we recognize that this is what the Bible and God wants for us. It's so easy to think that God just wants us to be unhappy. God just wants us to follow the rules and never get to enjoy the things of this world. What God is saying, his own words, he wants his people to dwell securely, to rest. I feel like I'm beating the same drum often, but it's necessary to beat. You know, the peace that everyone wants in the world, the security, the belonging, the identity, these things are ours only when we find ourselves with God. If we look at our lives today, if we look at the struggles that maybe you're dealing with, if you look at the, the challenges and the things that, that you're, you're going year by year, wondering if they'll ever be fixed, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart and miss out and fail to be part of it. God has been working. He's always been working to bring his people to rest with him. All you have to do is turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. And whether you've never done it before, whether you've believed before, but find yourself again in, in, in the entanglement of sin and the peacelessness and the sleeplessness that comes with it, the call of Scripture is the same, to repent and believe and come and follow him. See, the Bible tells us there is security with the Lord. There is joy when you dwell with him. There is rest in the house of God. God knows what kind of house and dwelling he wants. He tells David and Nathan, he's been doing it all along. He's got it. And so instead of David building him a house of cedar, the Lord will work towards this rest in an ironic way by building David a house. This leads us to the final point of this passage. We saw the house God actually wants. We see the house that God has been building. And then thirdly, we see the house that the Son will build. The house the sun will build. Verse 11 has a turning point in it. You see it right in the beginning, or right in the middle of the verse. God responds to David's assumption that God wants a bigger and better house, and he has a reversal. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he said, you are going to make me a house? No, I'm going to make you a house. David started off this whole thing by wanting to build God a new home, but God says that's not how it's going to work. God will build the house he wants. He's been building it since Genesis 1, but there is still a blessing and a promise for David, his servant, and that in building the house for God, God will actually build up the house of David. Now, it's a play on words. Obviously, it's kind of like a pun. Um, it's funny how many times God uses puns in the Bible. So if you hate dad jokes, just know they came from the ultimate dad originally. The word for house, which can mean a home, a household, or a temple, can also mean a family, as in a dynasty, right? You guys know about dynasties, right? Um, Golden State Warriors, or boo, or we don't want to talk about that right now. Um, you know what a dynasty is. This is what God is talking about. The house of David. The royal line of David. Now, archaeologists actually found this really old uh, artifact from about 900 BC, which says the Beth Dawid, the house of David, speaking of the royal line of Israel. And so, as the king, God is saying something to David. He will make David's line last beyond him. 
Not like Saul. Remember, Saul just was one and done. David is going to have a dynasty. His sons, his offspring will rule over Israel as he did. God promises his line will rule. And this promise that we see here in 2 Samuel 7 is what the Bible scholars call the Davidic covenant. And this is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David. What is a covenant? Well, it's just a a weightier, more serious word for a promise, an agreement. But why do we use the word covenant then? Because when God makes a promise, that is a serious and weighty thing. And so we need to listen carefully. In the Bible, there are many covenants that happen between people and between nations. But when the covenants happen with God, they are super important. They are basically the backbone to the Old Testament, talking about how God is going to go about redeeming people. I said the whole Bible tells the story of how God is bringing us back to dwell with him. Well, how is that going to happen? The covenants show us how. After the fall, there are these crucial promises and agreements that God makes with people that kind of show us the backbone of his redemptive work. So first of all, there is the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, where God promises in Genesis 9 to bless all of humanity. We messed it up with our sin. God flooded the earth, but after he saved this family, he promises to bless humanity, to make them fruitful and multiply, and never destroy us with a worldwide flood again. So that's the covenant with Noah. A few chapters later in Genesis um, 11 and 15 and 16, or 12 and 15 and 16, God makes a covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is a promise that God will give Abraham a great family. He will make him into a people group. They will inhabit a land, the Middle East, and through this family, the whole world will be blessed. And then we have the Mosaic covenant, which happens after that family of Abraham goes into Egypt, is enslaved, and they're brought out again. God says, I'm going to make you into a nation. The Mosaic Covenant takes place between God and this one nation, Israel. How he will rule over them. How he will use them in his plan to bring about his redemption in the world. And then now, the Davidic Covenant. Where God promises, as we see in this verse, to raise up a descendant of David. To build a house for the name of the Lord. And to establish the throne of David forever. There's a new covenant that we haven't hit yet, but we'll stop right here because this is where we are in the Bible. The Noahic covenant to the whole earth, to all the people. The Abrahamic covenant to this particular people group. The Mosaic covenant to this nation in this land. And then the Davidic covenant to this king. Do you notice what is happening? He's narrowing down the promise. He's narrowing it. He's getting smaller and smaller. He's pointing to the fact that redemption will come through something very specific. From all of humanity to one group of descendants to one nation from that group to now one king. And so with that in mind, let's look at the promise again carefully. Verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
Now, there's all sorts of questions that we could answer about the Davidic covenant, all sorts of disagreements people have. Uh, We can't answer everything right now. But most Bible scholars and most commentators would agree that this promise is fulfilled partially through David's immediate descendants who would rule over Israel and Judah after he died. But ultimately, ultimately, this promise is about one particular future descendant, the Messiah. As you look at this text, the focus is not really on the dynasty. It's on an individual. And there are parts of the dynasty for sure, right? There are things that could be attributed to any of David's children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren who would rule about how if they sin, God would discipline them. About how God would keep the, the covenant love that he had with David, with his sons and his grandsons and his descendants, even though they would do bad things. And God does do that. But this promise, this text, it focuses on one particular descendant. If you read the Hebrew and the English, it's in singular. Your offspring, singular, after you, your seed. And so the question is, who is this, right? I mean, we might know we're we're Christians. We have an idea that it's Jesus. But some people think, is it Solomon? Solomon even thought so. If we read the book of 1 Kings, Solomon thought that he was fulfilling all this promise. That when he built the temple later, it was a fulfillment of God's promise to David. But I don't think that's it. After all, God says he will raise up this seed after David has died. And Solomon was actually put into power when David was still alive. I think that the reason that one specific seed is focused on here is that this whole premise, this whole promise is a setup for how God will finally build the house he has been planning through David's descendant, Jesus. As every Christian scholar will tell you, no matter what you think about the partial fulfillment of this promise, the Davidic covenant, of course, is ultimately about Jesus. Hebrews 3, verses 4 to 6. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Quickly, Hebrews 3, verses 4 and 6. The author of Hebrews says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the offspring of David, born in Bethlehem, who was one with the Father because he is the very Son of God. See, this promise points us forward way past the time of David to one who, though he committed no sin, would become sin on our behalf, to take the rod and the stripes of the sons of men. The one who, though he died a sinner's death, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is exalted, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The one who shall return to judge the living and the dead, and whose throne will be established forever. See, the Davidic covenant is one of those places in Scripture in the Old Testament that shows so clearly that Jesus has been the plan all along. That the house God will build through his Son is bigger and better and more than David could have imagined. It's not just a house of cedar. right? It's something that is indestructible. Christ's rule will be forever. It's not just a bigger tent or a better temple It is a universal reign when all things will be put in subjection to the king. 
the death of David and the sin of David's sons and the passage of a thousand years' time would not stop this promise. And it won't stop the promise from coming true that Jesus will come and reign forever again. God is the one who will build David's house. David's son, Jesus, will be the one who builds the house, the home where the people of God will dwell forever with him. You see, David is great. As we said often in this book, he's not good enough. No human ever could be. David is great, but his son, not Solomon, but Jesus will be greater. And this son of David will be the one who builds the eternal dwelling place of God with man. And it's why we've titled this whole study, King of Kings, right? Because this book, it may never say the name Jesus in the text, but don't miss the point. These books always consistently, ultimately point us to him. Perhaps never more than they do right here. So have you ever built a home? Probably not. Probably never done that process. Maybe you've never had a home. Maybe you've never even felt at home. If so, then hear the words of the Lord. In Revelation 21, which we read in our scripture reading, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It sounds so good because it is. Brothers and sisters, this covenant with David is good because our God who makes these types of promises always keeps them. See, David is good, but he is not good enough And it is the son of David who everyone in this room really needs. So for those who desire to be part of God's house, to dwell with him even now and fully one day for all eternity, it's simple. Turn to him. Trust his promise. Trust in him. For those who have already put their faith in Jesus, rejoice and worship. He desires to be near to us his people. And he made a way for us to dwell securely with him in the the newness of life as members of his household, as 1 Peter says, as part of the church. And in Jesus Christ, he will bring us home one day soon. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this afternoon and, and we're amazed that we have the privilege to call you Father. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has done things to rebel against your rule and turn to our own way. And yet, God, you have been gracious to us. Every step along the way, not just in our lives, but in the course of human history, has been you preparing the way for your people to return and dwell and rest securely with you. Lord, we're so thankful that you are a God who, though you are just and you punish sin, You are loving and gracious and you give these good promises which you never fail to keep. So even this afternoon, Lord, I pray that you would give us the right eyes to see Jesus as he is, to magnify him, to lift him up as our king. I'm going to give you guys a moment to pray in response to the word of the Lord. As we do, I just ask that you would Examine your hearts to see whether or not you have put your faith in the King of Kings 
to find the rest that you can have in dwelling securely with him. I invite you to pray on your own for just a few minutes and then we'll close together. Father God, we recognize and we confess together as a church that we are in need of you. We also want to recognize and confess Lord, the amazing truth that we are, because of your Son, the household of God. So right now, would you in just a few moments thank the Lord, thank him for his grace, thank him for the gospel of Jesus Christ, saves us from our sins. Thank him for the fellowship of the saints that we have in the church, his household. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We want to make much of him as a church. So we pray all this in his name. Amen.